Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And in verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray together. Father, we glorify you on today. This is a wonderful day and privilege where we can worship together and assemble as saints of your redeemed family and to lift up the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for who he is and what he has done and even the privilege of following him. And Father, I pray that you might open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. I pray, Father, that today you might bring someone to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you might intensify our walk with him to those who already have confessed his name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We praise the Lord for his wonderful word on today. So, brothers and sisters, just today I want to unapologetically uh, magnify the Son of Man. I want to glorify and exalt the Son of Man before us. And not only that, I want to hopefully compel us to consider what we must believe about the Son of Man and the lifelong commitment we must make to him. And also consider the judgment that the Son of Man will render at the time of his return. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 16, a familiar portion of scripture. And when we look at verse 13, we're given some context to the main portion of scripture that we want to consider on today. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. So they are in Caesarea Philippi, northern Palestine, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. They're in what is known to be a pretty pagan territory. It's a providential time for Jesus and his 12. And he has selected this moment to ask them about what is public opinion concerning the Son of Man. He identifies himself as the Son of Man, a a title that he often identified himself as. And on the one hand, it refers to the fact of his humanity. It speaks of his humility. He is the Son of Man who was to rejected and to suffer He is the Son of Man who possesses divine authority on earth to forgive sins, and he is the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment to come of the Son of Man that is prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He will tell the religious leaders that he is the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is the Son of Man. Who are we talking about? We're talking about none other than Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. And he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man 
is. Verse 14, they, his disciples, said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the people in King Herod, whom John, whom had John the Baptist beheaded, they had claimed it to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And others who heard about Jesus's miracles had claimed that he was Elijah, Elijah who is to come. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it speaks of Elijah who is to come. And so they assumed it to be him. They said perhaps one of the other former prophets who has risen from the dead. And even perhaps Jeremiah, representative of all the prophets, maybe perhaps it's him. Their answer was only partially correct. Jesus is the prophet of God, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But they didn't see him as the anointed prophet of God. They saw him as one amongst many. Their responses were inadequate. They were insufficient. They were not enough for saving faith. Jesus, remember, said, yes, he's much more than a prophet. Reminds me of the fact that today, people and media outlets, documentaries, magazines, colleges and universities, you name it, they have a picture of who Jesus is that is different from who Jesus actually is. What would your friends, your immediate family members, your neighbors, your co-workers, the people you attend school with, your supervisors, those in your circle, what would they say to the answer to the question, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Perhaps part of the problem is we don't know because we haven't asked them. But they might say he's a noble, virtuous man, a wise teacher, a sacrificial servant, a martyr among many. The problem is you can't call Jesus anything short of who he is or who he maintained himself to be. So having asked about public opinion, now he goes further. Verse 15, he said to them, meaning the disciples, but who do you yourselves say that I am? So he personalizes the question to them. Forget about the naysayers, I'm asking you. He had orchestrated uh, this moment. This moment was providential. And the location is providential as well. He's got the disciples to himself, away from the crowd for the moment. The disciples had witnessed his supernatural feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They witnessed his numerous miracles to lepers and to the lame and to demoniacs. He had miraculously turned water into wine. They witnessed his interaction with the Samaritan woman. They heard his authoritative sermon on the mount. They heard him preach repentance. They heard him preach the gospel of the kingdom. They saw him, they heard him rather speak in parables. They witnessed him walking on water and calming the storm on two occasions. And it was though he was saying, look, you've been in my company for quite some time now. I uprooted you from your families. I uprooted you from your occupations. I've exposed you to my teachings and my miracles, my identity up close. Who do you now say that I am? Brothers and sisters, he's personalizing that question to us today. He's personalizing it to us. 
Every person throughout all of human history since the ministry of Christ, no matter where you live, on one continent you reside, everybody is confronted with the question concerning the Son of Man. And everybody, whether vocally or even indifference, gives a response to that answer. No matter what the movies say, the television series, the news articles, the images around Christmas time and Easter, no matter what you've been taught or may have been pressured to believe by parents or even the church, you must answer for yourself who do you say that Jesus is. It's personal. It's a question. It's to be answered now. It's not to be postponed or deferred. Because the answer, brothers and sisters, has eternal consequences. So as we look at this passage, much of which comes from the lips of the Son of Man himself, we see what we must believe We see how we must respond, and you even hear words of judgment. What must you believe? What must you commit to concerning the Son of Man? First and foremost, you must believe on who he is. You must believe in who he is. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Simon Peter, the lead spokesperson, the lead representative of the other disciples, answers Jesus. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. What's the anointed one? It means the one whom God has set apart consecrated for a prophetic office, the office of priest, the office of prophet, the office of king. But Jesus is the Christ. He is the one whom the scriptures foretold and prophesied of. He is the one who was the long-expected and anticipated one. He is the Messiah King. He is the Messiah Savior. He is the Messiah prophet. He is the Messiah high priest. He is the one who perfectly and definitively fulfills and occupies all three offices. He is the one that 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, spoke of. He is the one that Deuteronomy 18 prophesied of. He is the one that the book of Hebrews speaks of, the great high priest who offers himself as the consummate sacrifice for all sin. You are not one among many, you are the Christ. And everybody else is a phony. Anybody else who professes to be a Messiah of any kind, even if they don't use the term, they're a phony. And notice what Peter does. He correctly connects Jesus' title as the Christ with his deity. He says, not only are you the Christ, you are the son of the living God. So you are not only Messiah, King, Deliverer, Savior, but you are God's one and unique Son, that's, that's John 3.16, brothers and sisters. You are the Son of God. John 5.18 tells us that when Jesus called God his Father, he was equating himself with God. He is equal with God in his essence. He is equal with God in his glory. Remember Jesus says, I'm returning to my Father to be glorified, to receive the glory that I had before the world began. 
He is the one who said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. He's equal in power. He possesses the capacity to do what the Father can do. He possesses all the divine excellencies, the divine attributes of God. You might say it this way. When he says he is the Son of God, he's saying, like Father, like Son. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 says, God says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Hebrews 1.3 says, says he's the exact representation of God's nature. you got to believe that, brothers and sisters, if you're going to be born again. If you're going to be saved, you have to believe in who he is. You have to believe that he's Christ. You have to believe that he's God. You must trust in him as your only Savior, as your only Deliverer. It's not enough to believe, to be, have mental assent to, the, to that reality. You have to believe that it's true, yes, but you have to... Trust in him as your Savior and your God. And you can't be on the fence. You can't be on the sidelines as a spectator. You can't claim neutrality because neutrality and pondering won't save you. You must believe and you must confess who he is. Notice Peter's confession. You are the Christ You are the Son, and then he says, of the living God. Right? The living God that Acts 14, 15 said, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26, it says this, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God? speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For it is for this we labor, Paul writes, and we strive because we have fixed our hope on who? The living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, in contrast to all the dead idols of the world. He is the living, the son of the living God, the living God who is holy and set apart, the living God who is eternal and separate from all creation. And you must believe in that concerning Jesus. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, right? To those who believe you are blessed because God, by his inexplicable grace, has selected us to whom he has revealed Jesus as his son. He says, he says Simon, blessed are you, privileged are you, favored are you, Benefited are you. You believe because of divine revelation. You, be, you believe because God from on high revealed that to you. You didn't come up with it with your own ingenuity, your own intellect, your own mental capacity and resources. Your education contributed nothing to it. You must believe, yet you cannot believe unless God enables you to believe. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. But to those who have believed, you are Savior. What a grace. There's no pride, right? There's no room for boasting for salvation because the faith that I believe has been given to me from above. Even repentance is a gift, the Bible says. 
And look at verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You are Peter, stone, right? This is a remarkable, <laughs> a remarkable prophecy that Jesus makes in the Gospels. There's only two times Jesus speaks of the church in the Gospels, this explicitly. And he says, Peter, which means stone, you are Peter, rather, and upon this rock I will build my church. So what do I think this means, this highly contested and debated passage? I have no problem saying I believe that what he is saying is what he's saying. Peter is the rock. Peter is the the rock that functions. He functions as the rock among the other apostles and the prophets, as it says in Ephesians 2.20, which is the foundation of the church that Jesus Christ, not Peter, is going to build. And where does that begin? It begins in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when Peter gets up and preaches the first Gospel following the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Peter preach? He preaches the same thing that he confessed in Matthew 16. So he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, Peter, you're the rock, but it is because of your, your confession of me as the Christ, the son of the living God, by which I'm going to build my church, and the other apostles and prophets are going to do the same. And when I build the church of Jesus Christ, guess what? They're going to do the same thing too. And he's building the church, right? This is a picture, one of the many pictures of church, of the church as a building, as a temple, as the household of God. Look what else is remarkable about this passage. He says, I'm going to build a church that not even the gates of Hades are going to overpower. Wow. Gates of Hades. It's the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament shield, the realm of the dead. And Jesus, what I believe Jesus is saying is that not even, not even the gates, the powers, the forces of death are going to crush and destroy the church that he's going to build. Right? He's going to build an indestructible church, the universal community of believers, right? He's going to erect something that is going to be so impenetrable and stable and enduring that not even death or Satan himself is going to be able to crush and destroy. Jesus Christ himself is going to die. The apostles themselves, most of them are going to be martyred, and then they're going to be martyrs subsequently for that. And guess what? The death of Christ, the death of the apostles, the death of martyrs to come, that is not going to crush the church. That's going to multiply it. Guess what, brothers and sisters? You and I, if you've made the bold confession... If you've made the bold confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, guess what? You are a part of the indestructible church that Jesus Christ is still building today. Jesus has already got a plan. Like This is the only entity on earth, the only entity on earth that Jesus Christ has promised to build and to bless. And you're a part of it if you've confessed his name. We've seen it historically, brothers and sisters. We've seen it. We've seen historically Satan's effort to try to crush and exterminate the church, and all it's had has had a counter effect. It's multiplied. It's multiplied. This church that began on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem now spans globally. You think Jesus Christ isn't building a church? He's building a church comprised of people from every nation and language and tribe and people group, and he's not done building. And he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom 
of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What is he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what he's not talking about. He's not talking about binding demons. He's not talking about binding Satan. He says, I'm going to give you, and he's talking to Peter in this immediate context. He just got through telling Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for making the great confession. Now he tells him, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys, that's figurative for the authority. I'm going to give you the authority to the sphere of salvation. And he's saying, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What does he mean? Well, when speaking of binding, he's speaking of denying, prohibiting, not granting admission to. When he speaks of loosing, He's talking about allowing, granting entrance and admittance to. So, Peter, you have the keys of the kingdom. And when you go on the day of Pentecost and preach the first gospel, you're proclaiming the kingdom. And when you tell people that they must repent, as he did in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, 38, and you tell people if they repent, they're saved, you have the keys of the kingdom, and you have granted entrance to people who have believed. But guess what? You're only doing what's in accord with what heaven has already done. That's what he says. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Whenever you go and preach the gospel, brothers and sisters, whenever you call men and women to repent and to believe in Christ, right, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. I don't possess... I'm not, I don't possess authority that has not already been endowed to me from God when I proclaim the gospel faithfully and I tell people you've been saved by virtue of the fact that you've repented and turned to Christ and I tell people, no, you will perish because of your rejection of Christ. But I'm only telling you what God has already said from above. I'm speaking in accordance with what heaven has already said. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. That might sound peculiar to us. Why would he tell them, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ, even though he just asked them, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Because of the political repercussions because the people were not spiritually there to receive, to, uh, to receive that truth. They wanted a military conqueror. They wanted a political deliverer, but they didn't want a savior. And he says, don't tell anybody until I've been raised from the dead, and I commission you to go out and bear witness to the fact that I've risen from the dead. So you must, brothers and sisters, believe in who he is. You must believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, there's something else, brothers and sisters. Not only do you must believe in who he is, you must believe in what he did. You must believe in what he did. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So he says, from this time now, it says, he's going to clarify something to them, right? His, Peter's confession marks a turning point. And it says from this point on, he's now going to clarify something, the matters concerning his crucifixion, his resurrection, his betrayal. He's going to offer himself up as a ransom. Look at the words, what he says. He says, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must 
go to Jerusalem? Why must he go? He must go to accomplish God's plan to fulfill the Father's will. But he must go for our justification so that we might be imputed with the righteousness of God. He must go so that you and I can be reconciled to the Father. He must go to bring us to God, Peter himself is going to say. He must go so that he might atone for our sins, that he might be the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He must go to the cross because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He must go to the cross. But not only that, brothers and sisters, he must be raised. He must be raised because, as it says in Romans chapter 1, he's raised and his resurrection declared him to be the son of God with power. And he must be raised because he must prove that death is powerless to keep him in the grave. He must be raised, and he must die. And who are the ones who are going to kill him? doesn't say it's going to be a mob of folks. It's going to be an organized regime, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Right? The religious hierarchy are going to be the ones who are going to champion the murder of Jesus Christ, but he's going to rise. You must believe that. You must not only believe the facts about his death and his resurrection, you must believe what they mean, what they mean. But Peter didn't like that. Peter didn't like that. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Not only was Peter out of line, he was thinking carnally. He was thinking carnally. He's thinking like an unbeliever, right? He had been previously the spokesperson for the disciples, confessing Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. Now he's a spokesman for Satan. He's acting on Satan's behalf. He's trying to get Jesus to deviate and depart from the path to the cross. This is Satan up to his old tricks again because he's, he, he tried it in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation. And this is, a, this is a classic example of somebody trying to advance their agenda against Almighty God's agenda. Peter tried to thwart God's sovereign plan of redemption for the church. He just got through confessing Jesus as King, Savior, and Son of God, but he rejected the work that was necessary to bring about salvation. Right? His, his, his theology of a Messiah didn't account for a suffering servant. They wanted a military deliverer. They wanted a ruler, a conqueror, an avenger. They didn't want the Lamb of God who was slain. And Peter thought he could stop it, right? Remember what he does in Gethsemane when they come to arrest Jesus? Takes out his sword and starts to slice him. Unless Christ dies, Peter, even you, even your sins cannot be atoned for. This is no different, brothers and sisters, today. People say they believe in God. They say they believe that God exists, but they deny they need a Savior, right? They deny they have sins that need forgiven. There's no hell. There's no lake of fire. If it is, it isn't for me. It's for the real worst of sinners. There's no judgment. I remember a prominent leader, prominent politician, remarking that he didn't need forgiveness, and if he... If he doesn't need forgiveness, then that means he never confesses his sins. That is the height of arrogance and the height of blasphemy. And how does the Son of Man respond? Look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're an offense, is what he's saying. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, 
but man's. What does it mean, get behind me, Satan, right? Clear the path. Get out of my way. I'm on a path to the cross. You're an obstacle. You're an offense. You're a rock of offense, a stumbling block. (laughs) He goes from being the foundation rock for the church to now being a stumbling block and a rock of offense. And this is what Satan is doing today. Satan is still up to his tricks, trying to thwart. He can't thwart the cross because the cross has already been accomplished. The resurrection has already occurred. Christ is already exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. He can't stop that. So you know what he does? He tries to thwart the entry of believers into the kingdom by disproving and dissuading as many people as possible from believing in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you're, or rather, whoever you are, if you're here today and you still persist in your unbelief, you don't believe who Jesus is, and you don't believe in what Jesus did, you adamantly deny that, you're on Satan's team. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area of neutrality. We see Peter's effort to block Jesus juxtaposed with the resolve of the Savior. Jesus is resolved to go to the cross. And so you must believe in who he is. You must believe in the magnitude of what he did. Finally, look at verse 24. Because in verse 24 and following, we see that you must be willing to follow him. You must be willing to follow him. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Wow. I want you to grasp the weight of this, of what he is saying. We have to try not to read this passage with 2022 lenses, but the implications still apply today. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's discipleship language. said, if you want to come after me as my lifelong learner and follower, Here are the conditions. Here are the conditions. He must deny himself. What does he mean? He must die to self. Die to self. He just got through talking about his suffering at the cross. Now he's saying you've got to die to self, which arguably is the greatest obstacle to coming to Christ. Forget about you and your priorities. Everything that you have placed ahead of Jesus Christ, that takes a distant second. This is hard truth because we don't evangelize like this. But this is what Jesus says. You've got to deny self. That's an imperative, by the way. And then he says, take up one's cross. There is another imperative. Right? Put your life on the line if necessary. Right? Cross, right? Don't think of gold crosses that we wear today. Think of the wooden cross in Jesus' day. It was reserved for the basis of criminals, the insurrectionists. And it was a symbol of shame and torture and horror. And it was not only punitive to punish those individuals, but it it was to serve as a warning to anyone who would dare do the same. And the Jews said, cursed is anybody who hangs on a tree. It was a sign of cursing. 
And so Jesus is using the same language. He's just got through talking about his suffering, alluding to his cross, and now he tells his disciples and would-be followers, if you're going to follow me, you've got to bear yours. The only thing they would have been thinking about is suffering and death with that language. Leading up to the cross, it may entail the forfeiture of close friendships and relationships. It may entail being socially alienated and ostracized. It may entail being treated as an outcast, maligned, insulted, mocked, suffering even at the point of death if necessary because of your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. That's discipleship one-on-one, according to Jesus. So he says in the previous verses, I'm going to be going to the cross, and if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up yours. And then he says, follow me. Follow me. That's a present imperative, meaning keep on following me. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, follow me daily. Take up your cross daily. It's a lifelong commitment, not a six-month subscription. This is discipleship, and this is what Jesus is telling them, right? You've confessed who I am. You say you believe in my cross and resurrection. Okay, now make the commitment. Follow me, even at the risk of death. Why? So in verse 25, he's going to raise the stakes. Going to raise the stakes and make it plain to them why this is incumbent that they do that. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, right? If you wish to save and to hold on to and to preserve and to cling your life by your refusal to deny self today, then you're going to lose it eternally in the next. You're going to lose it by suffering under the second death, which is the lake of fire. You come before the judgment of Christ at the great white throne and be banished into the fiery lake. Why? Because you refuse to make the confession of Christ, you refuse to believe in what he did, and you refuse to devote your life to him. Everything that you tried to cling to, you're going to lose at the judgment. What a waste. What a waste. Is it worth it? Of course not. But whoever loses his life today for my sake will find it. Right? If you're willing to lose your life, self-denial and cross-bearing, You will find it. The fullness of life equated with salvation. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You have abundant life, and then you have eternal life. Eternal life to be experienced in the present and in the fullness in the future. If you're willing to do that for my sake, for Jesus' sake, The one who's going to die on your behalf, are you willing to die to self to follow me? This is what I would, I I used to tell people when I would evangelize. I would evangelize. I would, I would tell people. So how would you respond to that? What do you, what do you, what what do you believe about that? Oh, I don't know. I'm not willing to make that decision. And I tell them, you willing to gamble eternity for that? 
You willing to gamble your life? Does your life mean that little to you? Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, which is synonymous with life, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit you if you gain all, you amass all of the world's riches and education and wealth and possessions and accolades and pleasures and famed, which is short-lived and perishes? You, you're going to throw life away and suffer in eternity. Why? Because you're trying to amass the world's acceptance and all the lies that the world provides in this short-term existence. This is what Jesus says. So, brothers and sisters, we've got to believe in who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And we've got to believe in what he did. What did he do? He was crucified on a cross, fulfilling the will of God for our sins and raised back to life on the third day. But we can't stop there. It's not enough to just have mental assent to that, to believe in the facts of that. You've got to trust in the reality of that And then you've got to make the full-fledged commitment to follow him. And even some of us as believers need to intensify that, that following and that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't end there. He ends with a warning. He ends with a warning. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. He's coming for divine judgment. And praise the Lord that we get a few claps because people don't like to clap when we talk about Christ and judgment. But he's coming to execute divine vengeance. He's coming to execute vengeance. He's coming with the full wrath of God. That's the son of man. That's what he's going to do. He's going to come in the glory of his father. Another allusion to deity. And he's coming with the host of angels. Right? And what are they coming for? They're going to execute judgment to repay. And then he's going to establish his kingdom reign where those who made the great confession and believed in his death and his resurrection and committed their lives to following him, they're going to be co-heirs and reign with him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes about this. And he says in chapter, excuse me, uh, verse 7, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. For what purpose? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, right? So the gospel is not just to be known, it's to be obeyed. 
How do you obey the gospel? You obey through repentance and faith. These will pay the penalty of eternal punishment, or excuse me, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. That's the picture of the Son of Man's return. The Son of Man is coming. And now is the window to make the great confession of his Messiahship and his deity, to make to, to place full-fledged faith in his death and his resurrection, and to deny self, bear cross, and follow him, and to make the great proclamation to those who have yet to believe. Will you believe in who he says he is? Or will you deny that he is Messiah and God? Will you believe about his atoning sacrifice and his triumphant resurrection? Or will you deny that or even say, I have no sin, I don't need a savior? Are you willing to commit to self-denial and suffering? If the Lord, so be it. Because that's the cost of discipleship. Or do you love your life so much that you're willing to cling to it, but risk losing it in the next? Having heard this, may we all believe and who he is, and what he did, and follow him on his terms. Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for our time in the study of your word. Father, I pray that you were glorified and magnified, and I pray, Father, that you would apply these truths to all of our hearts for us as believers to intensify our walk with you and also our proclamation to those who don't know Christ, Lord. And we pray for those who might be here that you might convict them, Father, and bring them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might escape the wrath of God to come, the judgment of the Son of Man, which is to come. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.